The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Well, good afternoon and welcome along to The Profile. I'm Justin Briley, Senior Editor of Premier Christianity magazine. And of course, the show is brought to you in association with that monthly title. So if you'd like a free sample copy, do go online and ask for one. PremierChristianity.com slash free sample. And every week here on The Profile, we're joined by Christians from some walk of faith and life to tell us about what they do. And uh, well, it's a pleasure to be joined by two people today on The Profile. Somewhat unusual, but nonetheless... Very, uh, very suitable today because uh, they've co-authored a book together. I'm joined today by David Hutchings and Tom McLeish. David is a physics teacher. Tom McLeish is professor of physics at Durham University, also chairs the Royal Society's Education Committee. And their book is called Let There Be Science, Why God Loves Science and Science That Needs God, published by Lion. Um, so uh, both David and Tom, welcome along to the profile. Thank, Thank you. It's Good great to, to have you with me. Um, this is a show where we try and go back a bit and we're going to do that with with both of your stories uh, as to what brought you to the present day and, and this particular book so let's go back to the beginning for you first of all Tom um, you're a Christian you're a scientist yeah. did those two always go hand in hand when you were growing up well they um, they they never conflicted so I remember so I've been a Christian since my early adult life a scientist since well, like I say when I was about two and a half I think um, just fascinated by nature and exploring mm. it and um uh i remember when i was a little boy my grandmother who's a very interesting lady one of the first um uh, women to take a botany degree actually at um, london university i think gave me a little microscope and also showed me how to take photographs you know the old-fashioned way oh, with yes. real developer and Developing fixer things, yeah. i remember doing this in the dark <laughs> um in her kitchen and um so influences like like that and interestingly she was also a lay reader at the local anglican parish church so so um i had that example mm. um it was only when in my i guess um young adult life um, I was launching a scientific career I also um, had uh, 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 committed uh, my life to God at that mm. point um, that, that people started asking me well how do I reconcile science and religion and I didn't know where they were coming from because this had never really been a problem mm. for me I found out later of course <laughs> they had in mind I mean we do live in an age today where many people and many key top scientists you know claim that there is this fundamental problem this this dichotomy between science and faith. Now, you weren't presented with that as an issue growing up. Um, I mean, what what were people saying when you did get to that point where they started to okay. say that there is some kind of disconnect? Right. So, so they they say some strange things like science has disproved God. We have mm -hmm. that sort of me. There are memes going around. Mm. Um, they say things like um, like um, they, there are historical stories that I found needed correcting. Mm. Um, like the rise of, of science yeah. um, was a sort of secular movement that overthrew um, a Middle Ages, you know, caught up in Christian dogma and mysticism, when actually um, uh, <laughs> real history tells quite an opposite story. Mm. Um, historians today, like Peter Harrison, for example, Oxford historian of science now in Australia, um, has, has written very clearly pointing out how the early um, Christians took the philosophy of Francis Bacon, which is uh, a Christian story of how experimental science is used to recover the sort of ignorance and damage to our knowledge of creation that is a result of our disobedience. Um, you know, that's a, a bit of an interpretation of the Bible story mm. of the fall, but it nonetheless shows that there's a strong Christian motivation to do mm. to do modern science. The other thing people say is that um, <laughs> is that uh, is that religion is all about faith. Um, in unprovable assertions, and that science is all about fact. On the other mm. hand, and you mm. can't you can't mix mm. faith and fact. So one of the reasons why I wanted to write about about this was to tell real stories about science, where if you like faith with a small f, faith in the scientific ideas that you really believe in, mm. but you know um, aren't very persuasive to most people yet. That sort of little faith is essential to how science works. It's a very human. Yeah. Activity, yeah. and it's also true that um, that a Christian worldview. The reason I'm a Christian is 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 partly scientifically motivated. I only have one brain, not not mm. not two, and I'm a Christian because I found it the worldview that makes the best sense of the life that I live in, the world right. that I that I find myself yeah. in. Yeah. Let's come to you, Dave. 
David Hutchings, you're the co-author of this book, Let There Be Science, with Tom. Um, and, and in many ways, I suppose, what you've aimed to do with this book is provide a sort of an accessible, lay-level story of the history of science and how Christianity intersects at so many levels with it. Um, and you do that, in a sense, you, you are communicating at a, an accessible level to students in your classroom oh, yeah, I hope when so. it comes to yeah. physics. Um, <laughs> Uh, do you often have you found that a lot of those who are coming through to do say A level physics are coming with some kind of an idea that science and religion are are in conflict? Yeah, I think that it is almost a default position. Wow, mm. okay. um, yeah. it is so deeply ingrained the idea that these are competing ways of explaining the world. Mm. You either explain it using science or you explain it using God, and then lumped in with God goes. The Tooth Fairy mm. and, um, you know, joss sticks Santa and Claus. scatter cushions. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> or you can, go, you can go science. And if you go science, then you can do an experiment and you can prove it. And yeah. there's maths and that's what clever people do. Mm. Um, so, you know, this, this split, I think, is, it goes very mm. deeply um, and it goes very early as well. Certainly by the time I have students coming to me, uh, the youngest I teach are 14, um, they... It's pretty much locked in. That mm. viewpoint is locked in. Yeah. Right. Mm. By the time they leave your care, do they potentially have a different way of viewing the relationship? I think what I would hope is that they they understand um, that this stuff is built on a very flimsy foundation. This view mm. is built on a flimsy mm. foundation. Uh, I had an email uh, from a student who left this year saying, um, I, I, haven't, I haven't become a Christian, mm. but you have shown me that becoming a Christian would not be something that I couldn't do. Right. It's not an intellectually indefensible yeah. option, as it yeah, were. That's yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, uh, that's progress. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, take us back in your story then. Did you grow up yourself in a, in a Christian family? Then? Yeah, I, I grew up in a Christian family. Um, I think I grew up with an incredibly simplistic worldview. Mm. Uh, I thought that there were two types of people in the world. There were goodies and there were baddies. Mm. Uh, when they died, the goodies would go to heaven, the baddies would go to hell. And it was really easy to tell the difference because the goodies were the people that went to church on a Sunday right. and the baddies <laughs> didn't. Now, nobody had taught me that, but, but I think I just, that, yeah, I just sort of picked yeah. it up. Um, and then I remember very clearly being... I mean, I was quite a naughty little lad, and uh, I got I, into. I can't a... believe that. <laughs> oh, I, <can>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got into a fight. I got told off at school by the head teacher, and I can remember that whilst this guy was standing over me and pointing his finger and shouting, the thought that was going round and round in, in my head was, um, "This guy just doesn't get that I'm a goodie." <laughs> Honestly. So I came home with this sense of indignation uh, and, and I said to my mum, you know, uh, the head teacher told me off as if it was totally unacceptable mm. that he'd done that. And, uh, and she said to me, well, actually, sometimes you can, you can be a pretty unpleasant guy. I, I can't remember the exact wording, <laughs> but what I can remember is my entire worldview shattering as if it had been a snow globe <laughs> over my head and suddenly it had fallen to pieces. Mm. Um, I burst into tears and for the first time I thought, what if I'm not a goodie? Mm. That thought never crossed my mind. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and in desperation I said, what can I do? What can I do? Um, and she said, you, just, you need to go to Jesus and ask him to forgive you and you need to ask him for help to start running your life his way. Mm. So I did. Mm. Um, and uh, so I was you know, eight or nine at the time right. um, and then uh, I developed an interest in science but I kind of did Christianity on my own I, mm. there, was, there were no other Christians at school to mm. talk to about this stuff um, there wasn't a youth group at church uh, my sister and I were the only teenagers really um, who were trying to live a Christian life right. and um, so I did it on my own and I didn't really know what the done things were. Right. I didn't fall into any kind of... You didn't of... have a peer group to relate to. <laughs> no, <laughs> no that's right. No. And, um, and I think that uh, it was in that context that at sixth form, my friends started to say, well, what about evolution, you know? Yeah. Um, and all this kind of stuff. And that's when the tension starts to yeah. come. And, and how, you know, without really having anyone on hand to give you the answers, how did you go about trying to answer these questions? Mm. I started to get books on apologetics right um and uh so i was reading things like john blanchard mm. um and stuff like that but i think the problem there is i didn't know what was reliable and what wasn't right. 
So some of these books would be um, very solidly scholar, you know, scholarly, mm, and others yeah. would be fly by night. And I, but I didn't know how you could tell the difference. Yeah. So I started building into my armory some apologetic, apologetic arguments that I now know are a load of rubbish. Right. Um, and uh, so if any of my former sixth form colleagues are listening, <laughs> some of that stuff I argued, yeah, I, I, I know I, now, it was, <laughs> I know it was wrong. But uh, I mean, you were obviously learning yeah, yourself. That's right. you, this yeah, was yeah. all part of you coming to a mature faith where it, you were obviously grappling with the, the big yeah. questions that, that were being thrown at you. You'd obviously begun with a, something, I guess, that was an experience of God, yeah. a, a, something that obviously was very meaningful, but you were now having to try and make that you know, work with the, the world you were being presented with. I think that's a an experience many of us mm-hmm. go through in mm-hmm. that sense um eventually though your science would lead you into teaching as well yeah, yeah. so so that's obviously something you you've something of a passion for communicating ideas and that kind of thing um yeah and and i guess for you that that's an interesting opportunity you're not there as a, an re teacher but but obviously no. those questions do come up you know yeah in the, in the natural yeah course of um, i am I'm famous with my students for spending almost no time on the actual topic. Um, and All the best teachers are like that. Yeah. It's hard to tell exactly who's playing the game, really. But they, they know that they only need to ask some sort of question, and that, that lights the paper. Dra- drags the whole thing. Yeah. Lesson um, but off at course, the same yeah. time, I love that as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... The most memorable lessons that I can remember from <laughs> from school are the ones where we completely yeah. went off at a tangent. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And it often seems to come up in the space topic. That seems to be the one that okay. triggers. Yeah. We're talking about space and all of a sudden someone will say, uh, well, we're really insignificant then, aren't we? Mm. Now that question is a huge question. Yeah. Because Tom and I would look at the universe and, and draw the exact opposite conclusion. Right. You know, look look at the scale of everything. So some mm. people would say it's so big that we're really small, so we're unimportant. Yeah. But I would flip it right the way around, and I think a really nice analogy is in um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy trilogy, mm. where there's this torture device called um, the Total Perspective Vortex, <laughs> and it's the idea is it's the most horrific punishment uh, or experience that anyone could undergo, because you walk into this room. And you are shown the grand perspective of the entire universe. Mm. And when that happens, you're so overcome with your own insignificance that you're basically ripped to pieces. Right. Um, and the hero of the book is, well, Mar- is Frog Mar- well, sort of okay. hero. At the <laughs> anti-hero. Say Frog Yeah. Is Frog marched in and comes out unscathed. <laughs> And uh, they can't figure it out. He's got an ego. (laughs) But but the key is, you know, why? Because it was all about him. Right. He goes in there, and the whole universe is all about him. (laughs) The thing that he picks up from this, this, wow, look how big it is, is that just makes me worth even more. Wow, right. And and, and I feel that when... (laughs) There are flaws to this now. (laughs) Well, you've got to let me finish it. The the thing is that... um, you know, we live in this creation, this fantastic, <laughs> giant, huge, astonishing creation. But it's for us. Yeah. And and um, God made it for us to live in and for us to have a relationship with him. And it is all about us, not in an egocentric way, but in an invitational way. But coming back to, to you, uh, Tom, is, I mean, the average atheist I know, um, who, you know, is familiar with these issues, would say that is an incredibly egocentric way of looking at the universe because uh, you know you look at us we're on this pale blue dot as Carl Sagan yeah. put it we're you know just one scrap of life hanging on to you know in, in an, an, an overwhelmingly hostile universe yeah. when it comes to life um, what on earth would make you think that, that the, we're the centre of it or we're what this was here for that's got to be a faith claim well on your part. yeah I would say and, and I wouldn't say we're necessarily central mm. um It is extraordinary that we are loved and created and cared for. And at the same time, God makes the distant galaxies and the the universe. And actually, who knows what Mm. other parts of creation um, that there are? I mean, but this isn't as if this is new. I mean, I'm 
I have, a, as you know, a, a, a deep love for the book of Job. Mm. Um, in the, they're right in the middle of our Bibles, possibly the oldest mm. book there, maybe certainly one of the oldest bits of science, nature, nature wisdom mm. ever written. And, and there, um, right at the end, when, when, when God finally meets Job and answers some of his questions with, with a whole catalogue of beautiful questions about nature, he ends up going through all the chaotic wild side of nature that Job knows about, um, the storms, the earthquakes, the lightning, and so from the floods, and, and then, and then the, the animal kingdom, and then goes off the end and carries on talking about beasts you've never heard of, the behemoth <laughs> and the leviathan, and saying, you know, that's the, that's the proud, that's the beast, mm-hmm. that's my creation, which I'm most proud. Mm. And you're thinking, well, this is extraordinary. So actually, the, there's, in, in Christianity, there is this extraordinary balance I yes. think, between it's not always about it's, it's, you no, it's not always about it's not always about you and don't claim it is about you i've got other fish to fry but you are of course i love you and the yeah. leviathan thr- thr- thrash- thrashing about so i think it's it, it's balanced but but it, it isn't about being insignificant sure so yeah true. It, it, it's fascinating stuff i mean on this i i once saw a video fascinating i love science videos and this one was one where it started with a human being and then it zoomed out to see you know right. the the planet they were on and then the solar system they were part of and then the Milky Way and then, you know, right out to the limits of the, you know, observable universe. And then it went right back in in. and then it went into the human and it started to go down right to the subatomic tiniest quark level. That's right. And the interesting thing is if you're talking about how big are we? Well, we're kind we're of in the middle. In the middle. That's out. a very <laughs> good point. Is... In fact, Dave and I were doing a little day's um, discussion uh, for, some, for some folk the other day on a, um, uh, a, a retreat. And we actually built, we, this argument came mm. up, and we actually mm. built a diagram of, right. in scales of factors of 10, yeah. which does put us more or less right in there. That's right it's in fascinating, the things we it? know about. It is yeah. about perspective sometimes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about this book then, um, because a lot of people uh, will say, we don't need God anymore. We've got science. Science explains the way the universe is. It, you know, God was there when we needed some kind of an explanation for why it rains and, you know, why earthquakes happen and so on. We, it was a ready explanation mm-hmm. at the time for mm-hmm. people who didn't know better in a yeah. pre-scientific age. And, and you talk about the book yeah. of Job, which, you yeah. know, is probably our oldest book in the Bible, mm. very much written in a pre-scientific age. Yeah. And many people might wonder why on earth would you think this is such a great book you know in today's yeah, world. well w- one thing i wanted to say is that science one of our problems with science is is, is that um science itself is rather is rather needy um and and so one of the sad things about this um lie really this story that science is in conflict with faith is that the church has tended to see science as a threat rather than a gift and has run in the opposite direction where it's actually what needs what the, what science or what we need the church to do is to support science accept it as a gift support scientists as people with a calling um and uh, and help us um uh, uh wisely use the knowledge science gives us you know without the church doing this um, society and politics even doesn't have and certainly education doesn't have the voice it needs the voice of wisdom that, that, it, that, it, that it, it needs and so something i say you talk about as pre-scientific age I, i'm not sure that what i've learned about the history of science really tells me that you can draw a line between scientific and pre-science I, what, what i like to say these days is that science is the name that humankind gives the current chapter of a book we've been writing that has previous chapters that go right back to the dawn of when humans first became became humans. And, pre, you know, just 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you see, I wouldn't be called a scientist, I'd be called a natural philosopher. Mm. And that's interesting because that has a rather different different ring to it. If science has, the, has a ring of I know things, then natural philosophy says, well, I love wisdom to do with nature. And sometimes I talk to people who have science is difficult and painful and what good. And I said, well, suppose it were called love and wisdom to do with natural things. Would you find that more accessible, more inviting? And they say, yes, they would. <laughs> and then, of course, that takes us right back to the wisdom literature of old. And, and you find that, you know, that there isn't a pre-scientific age. The great medieval thinkers in, in Europe who started thinking about optics, medicine, drew their information partly from their own minds and their Christian worldview from the great Islamic philosophers and scientists of the early Middle Ages who got it from Neoplatonism and the Greeks mm. and the ancient Hebrews so rarely uh, it's been a continuous yeah. story not to say yeah. science is part of what God made, how God makes yeah. us. What, what kind of arguments do you make in the book Dave to say that 
we are in some way indebted to the Christian worldview when it comes to the way we do science today? Uh, well, e- each chapter looks at a slightly different element. So, uh, for example, um, we have this view, uh, Tom's talked about the book of Job, where Job's main charge against God, when he's dealing with, Job is suffering greatly, and Job is seeking to build a case against God. And he decides that the way to do it is to identify parts of nature where God is dropping the ball. And if he can do that, if he can show that God is making a mess of the natural world, then he's got a case because he can say, you can't even look after the natural world. Therefore, you know, you are morally um, making a mess of my life as well. So he starts to identify things, landslides, floods, um, whirlwinds and and so on. Um, And in God's response, what we get is, no, 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 no. These things appear chaotic to you but they're not and in fact i these are part of my plans god says you know who's this obscures my plans and then he says these things are watering lands that you don't know about Mm -hmm. okay um they are providing food for animals that you've never heard of uh basically god says i am running the world and uh, there is a big picture that all the small chaotic parts that you are saying i'm making a mess of actually combine to form Mm. well that is something that we have learned in science is actually true at the most Mm. fundamental level of our existence you go down to quantum mechanics it is a seething rambling mess and if someone had just shown you that you would say there is no way that there could be any kind of order in the world whatsoever um and therefore i think it's no coincidence that many of the big players in the quantum revolution were Christians. Um, And so you see this sort of scaling up. Mm. Uh, The Bible teaches us a truth about God and the world. We then discover it within the scientific context as well. Um, And so we have other chapters, um, pain and suffering. We discover Mm. that in science. We discover Mm. it in the world. Love, we Mm. need it in science. A lot of early scientific ideas when they're put forwards Mm are in bits and pieces. They, they are missing data. When Galileo argued for the um, Earth going around the sun, he had an awful lot of missing data. Mm. He couldn't build a very strong scientific case at all. But people loved that idea mm. into existence. I mean, yeah. Robert Hooke, I think, says, um, there isn't really much going for heliocentrism other than the fact that it's really, really great. <laughs> um, and... Uh, And so, again, we love these scientific ideas. But because of where the conversation currently is in culture with people like Dawkins and others, uh, kind of using people like Darwin as some sort of equivalent (laughs) of uh, poster boy for atheism, people are sometimes shocked to realise just how many Christians have been involved in scientific endeavour. I mean, do you want to give us some examples and and the people that you talk about in the book? Sure. Sure. Yes, go ahead, Dave. Uh, So um, Newton, I think he's a controversial figure. Some would say, yeah, definitely straight down the line, uh, committed Christian. Others would say, well, a bit unorthodox on some fronts. But what is clearly true is he loved his Bible. Mm -hmm. He studied his Bible deeply. He wrote more um, Bible commentary than he wrote science in his life. Um, And he believed in the the God of the Bible. Uh, And then uh, you have other people like Kepler, who explicitly says... You know, I'm doing this to learn more about God. Um, incidentally, he was right about a lot of the stuff that Galileo was wrong about at the same time. Something else that um, uh, that uh, Kepler says, we sometimes uh, refer to Stephen Hawking, don't we, as, as the man who coined this idea of thinking, science being like thinking God's thoughts after mm. him. Actually, it wasn't Hawking. He, Hawking was quoting yeah, Kepler. Well. Kepler yeah. says, gosh, if, 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 if piety will allow me to say so, mm. um, doing my science, it feels like thinking God's yeah. thoughts after yeah. him. Who are some of your heroes in this regard? Oh, well, I'm a, um, I'm a massive fan of James Clark Maxwell, actually. Well, two great 19th century, great experimentalists, a great, great theoretician, James Clark Maxwell and Michael Faraday, um, both deeply committed uh, Christian men. Um, Faraday um, also committed to public uh, outreach. So he um, uh, sort of invented the, um, or, well, the course to flourish, these great Friday evening discourses right here in London, the Royal, um, uh, Royal 
institution. If you were anyone, you wore your glittery frocks and, and bow ties to the Royal Institution on a Friday night every week to hear what was great in science from Michael Faraday. When he'd done that, he'd take a left turn out of the, out of the, um, the, the, the building and go to the soup, soup kitchen because he was a member of a church um, unusual church doesn't exist anymore. It's a Christian church that had a passionate commitment to the poor of London, mm. um, and um, uh, and he always saw that his science. He's the one who discovered um, really how electricity and magnetism are two sides of the cake, same coin, and work off each other. And then and then Maxwell, probably the greatest genius this these islands have ever produced, apart from Newton and maybe just as great, should be much better known. Scotsman. Uh, uh, mathematically formulated the laws of electromagnetic fields yeah. and much besides um, solids, liquids, gases, statistical mechanics. Um, I use Maxwell's uh, uh, physics every day in what I do. Well, I want to ask more about these people and, and how their science um, was undergirded by their faith in, in the next section of today's programme. But this is a fascinating topic and uh, we're, we're talking today to the authors, the co-authors of the book, Let There Be Science, Why God Loves Science and Science Needs God, here on The Profile. David Hutchings and Tom McLeish join me, Justin Briley, for the programme. Again, if you want to listen back to today's show, you can do that online, premierchristianradio.com forward slash The Profile. Available, of course, as a podcast as well. Do check it out on iTunes and however you get your podcasts. And uh, we'll be back in a moment's time with the second part of today's programme. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of today's programme. The Profile with me, Justin Briley. I'm Senior Editor of Premier Christianity magazine. The Profile brought to you in association with that title. If you want to get a copy of the latest edition of the magazine, absolutely free, you can ask for one at our website, premierchristianity.com slash free sample. And it's always a pleasure to meet interesting people on the programme from week to week. In fact, I've got two interesting people joining me on the show today. Uh, they are Tom McLeish and David Hutchings. They've co-authored the book, Let There Be Science, Why God Loves Science and Science Needs God. Available from Lion. Uh, you can find it uh, at all good book retailers online and everywhere else besides. Uh, do go and check it out. It really is a very accessible book about the way Christianity has been the, the bedrock in many ways of uh, scientific advances over the years. And we've been hearing your personal stories and your own faith uh, in the course of today's programme, gentlemen. Um, but we're getting into the meat of the book now. And um, and you were saying before we went to a break, Tom, that, you know, people like Faraday and Maxwell mm. have been some of your scientific heroes who joined their faith with their science. In fact, I mean, and with these people who many people are maybe unfamiliar with just how many Christians have been involved mm. in scientific progress and advancement over the years. I mean, many people like Dawkins might say, well, that was just incidental. They happened to be Christians who did good science, but in no way was their their faith instrumental to that. You know, yeah. it was it was a bit of a, you know, one of those things. Um, why isn't that the case well, for it you? It doesn't hold up because if you, well, it's not for me. I mean, you can do the history, you can do the yeah. history properly. Um, and I would would point Richard Dawkins to another Oxford historian, Peter Harrison, actually now working in um, uh, um, Queensland now, mm. but he's, who's, who's written a proper document. You see, I wish Richard would do, <laughs> would do to history, take to history the quality he takes to his science and mm. actually make his statements evidence-based. Yeah. If you look at evidence-based, you can say, you can show that... Um, uh, most of these these, these uh, scientists didn't, didn't live in a split had split brain personalities or anything, but that their faith was motivating their science. So, um, their, if you like, science was their calling, and that's true for individuals. Mm. But it's also true for the great modern experimental science project as a whole. Um, the the founders of the Royal Society, um, uh, Wren, Boyle, um, we've talked about Newton, um, or. or, or Ready? They were getting their philosophy. There was a there was a very explicit philosophy of why we do science, and it comes from Francis Bacon. Mm -hmm. You can read Francis Bacon about it, and it comes from um, the a Christian understanding of what's wrong with the world. You know, mm. part of you know Christianity is great because it's realistic about 
um, about the world being a rather painful, difficult place. And not the way it and feels like it should not be. Not the way it feels like it should be. Yeah. And it feels like it should be. In fact, it should be that we're kind of in peace and understanding with nature. And we're mm. not, like Job mm. was. And we find nature frightening, also ignorant of it. And these people realise that there's a Christian theology for using the minds God gives us and the senses he, 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 he gives us and the curiosity he gives he gives us to turn that into becoming growing up really from our sort of fallen state growing up into a state where we are at peace with the world um, uh, uh, around mm. us where we can replace the ignorance that we have with knowledge and replace the fear and the sort of mutual harm of creation that we have with well let's call it wisdom and mm. um, so now all that's um a motive explicitly it's all written down people have diarized it it's mm. written in francis bacon's book mm. novel novo morganum as the basis from for for um uh, for um uh, yeah. for modern science you yeah. can evidence that yeah i mean coming back to you uh dave I think where many people, we've already mentioned his name, Richard Dawkins, are coming from when they claim that there is this dichotomy between science and faith is they might look at modern incarnations of Christianity in certain mm. parts of the world, mm. young earth creationism, for instance, and they say mm. these people are just trying to make the Bible say things about science that simply mm. are true um, and vice versa. And, and and I think for them, that's where they see this, this great danger. They see that, yeah. that religious people are responsible for trying to undermine science, trying mm. to... Mm. And they'll even read that back into history. And, mm. and a typical mm. example might be, you know, well, look back, and it's always been happening. Galileo was persecuted by the church for claiming mm. that right. the sun revolves... Uh, the earth revolves around <laughs> the sun, yeah. and that kind of thing. And, and they say this has always been the case. Religion's been a constant break on progress on science. Mm. Now we've finally had the enlightenment at last we can do away with superstitious thinking it's it's time for science to take its proper place at last so a lot there but, <laughs> but is that true is that whole story true even if you might be able to say yeah some of what you're seeing today is not is not necessarily a great example of the way faith mm. and science matches up yeah the, the story that overarching story that is so popular um is is not true so um in the 1870s uh, there were two chaps, uh, John William Draper and Andrew Dixon White. They both wrote books with very similar titles that take the basic form of a history of the warfare between the church and science throughout Christendom. You know, it's that kind of... Slightly massive, loaded title. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you, you, you know what it's going to be about. Um, it's like and, reading a book called The God Delusion. Yeah. You know what's going to be inside. Yeah, that's right. But they, they sold like hotcakes. Right. Um, and uh, and in fact, we're still being sort of revised and updated in, even into the 1950s, which is astonishing mm. when you think about it. Mm. Um, and that entire storyline where they sort of went back and, and tried to identify cases where the church had misled science, um, you, you, it's almost like you can go back one at a time and say, oh, well, OK, well, that one's not true. That one's not true. That one's not true. And so on. So you get these you mean myths. they had they had taken examples and... Twisted them to the, so their own some, narrative. So some were twisted examples. Mm. Some were biased accounts of a, a very balanced mm. um, and subtle mm. story. Some were genuinely completely invented. Fabricated. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Alternative <laughs> facts. We yeah. 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 Fake news has been around yeah. for, for long. It's time astonishing, before. really. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and for those two books to have the impact that mm. they have... Um, I almost see that as one of the evidences of the truth of Christianity, that, that Christianity says we're rebellious <laughs> against Christianity. I think that means we're much more likely to bite when someone offers us a steak that's been laced with something that right. will turn yeah. us off Christianity. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, t t talk to us about one of those classic yeah, okay. examples. I mean, there's the whole Galileo, yeah. you know, being persecuted by the church for trying to do science so uh, one of the useful things to say straight off and i talk to the, the students about this is i tell the original story mm. um the story as it's well known um as it's generally presented which is hey um people because of the because the bible says that the um the earth the sun goes around the earth everybody believed that and if they didn't believe that they were going to be in big trouble with with uh, the church uh then along comes a brave atheist scientist Galileo, who says, no, I'm going to follow the evidence. And he proved uh, mathematically and scientifically that the uh, Earth goes around the sun. And then, um, because that was in disagreement with the Bible, the Catholic Church, uh, and you can insert your own ending, it can be burnt him at the stake. Excommunicated yeah, him. You know, um, sent him off to Naboo or something. <laughs> so um, 
the thing is that if you look at each individual part of that story, they're all wrong. Right. Um, so for a start, uh, the idea that the um, Earth went around the sun is an old idea. It goes back to the ancient Greeks. Mm. Um, and uh, the reason it was rejected is there's no evidence for it. Okay. You know, when you, when you so stand on the Earth... it was always a theory that was on the table. It's just there had been not enough evidence yeah, to yeah, show that was true. That's right, because if you're flying around the universe mm. at these incredibly high speeds, then according to all the science of the day, your own atmosphere is blown away, mm. so the Earth should have no atmosphere, and you should be flung off. Mm. Uh, the whole thing was patently ridiculous. So it was thrown out for, for scientific reasons, not because it says it in some psalm somewhere. Right. Um, and then uh, the second thing to know is that Galileo was a committed Christian, an incredibly committed Christian. And stayed that way. And stayed that way his whole life and wrote one of the strongest defences of Christianity in relation to science that's ever been written mm. in 1615, a letter to a, a friend. Um, and he turned his telescope up to the skies. He had a new type of telescope. He uh, took some measurements. He started to become convinced that Copernicus's idea from a, a few decades earlier, uh, that the maybe the Earth was going around the sun, might just be right. Now, interestingly, we don't know whether Copernicus actually thought that himself. Copernicus writes down these ideas. He thinks, look, this is a neat mathematical solution. Isn't it useful? Um, and no one in the Catholic Church reacts. Copernicus doesn't get into any kind of trouble. Um, there's no kick-off whatsoever. Fact, the, you should say the Pope at the time actually encouraged Copernicus to publish his, yeah, his right. book. That's, yeah, okay. that's yeah. the situation of the Church yeah, in the first round. Then Galileo comes along, he thinks, hey, Copernicus might have been onto something. He finds a few initial readings, um, and he starts advocating Copernicanism. Then that gets a few people's backs up, because Galileo is this belligerent character, this flamboyant character. He's loved by about half of the, the world and hated by the other mm -hmm. half of the world. Um, and, uh, and so he's got enemies. And some people uh, get him dragged along for a trial where he's asked to defend his position and he can't um he he puts forward these a few scientific arguments but not very many it's mostly rhetoric mm. um and he does it in a rather uh unwise way right uh, winds a few more people up and then he's banned from teaching it as a as a theory mm. he signs it and 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 uh the uh robert bellarmine who is the uh one of the inquisitors in fact was he the head of the inquisition at the time he was certainly a big hitter and um uh, he says, well, look, um, there are certain scriptures that appear to us to say that the Earth is still. But if Galileo can provide scientific evidence that it's moving, we need to admit that we've misunderstood these scriptures. Mm -hmm. Now, that's written down at the time, right. um, which is exactly what you would expect mm. if you're doing good science. He mm. then says, but there isn't enough scientific evidence, so we're rejecting it. Then <laughs> Galileo's best friend is elected Pope. And he thinks, I'm onto a winner here. Because this guy's always supported him. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so Galileo decides, you know what, I'm going to write this book. And I'm going I'm to go full explicit. This is definitely the truth. Mm -hmm. So he writes it out. He takes it to the Pope. Um, and the Pope says, well, I think you've been a bit too headstrong here. It needs to be gentler. Mm -hmm. um, and also the Pope takes this rather odd line of, um, these things are too mysterious. This is God's business. Mm. You shouldn't be prying into it. And mm. that takes Galileo a bit by surprise. So the agreement is that he then has to present it um, as not a lock-solid theory, mm. but um, one that is on the table. A tentative yeah. theory. He inserts a, a character into his book who he calls The Fool. <laughs> um, and he has The Fool giving all the Pope's lines. <laughs> And in the book, he refers. He refers. In the book, he refers. Not the most politically no, brilliant move. No, no. <laughs> the the other characters refer to this guy as a mental pygmy, um, and uh, and so basically, Galileo now has has said to the Pope, you know, here's a personal insult that I want to go big with, right. and the guys they just fall out. Right. And the the Pope was not a pleasant chap mm -hmm. himself. Um, there's this trial. They get Galileo on a technicality. Mm -hmm. Um, where they say, hang it, we found this signed document from before where you said you weren't going to teach this mm -hmm. stuff and you've gone against it. He, they managed to get him on the smallest charge they can possibly get him on. And then he argues again in a rather unwise right. and unscientific way, gets himself in more trouble, they up the charge. Um, and uh, eventually he is put under house arrest. He's not burned at the stake. 
Um, he is not tortured. He's not put in prison. Um, all these things are, are myths. Um, and uh, and he is packed off to to house arrest in a couple of different places. Lives for about another forty years or something. Continues to do the things he enjoys. Continues doing, doing his science, including mm. writing his greatest work of all, which is the work on motion, which mm. then in turn led to uh, Newtonian physics. He's probably the great, the best treated heretic in the entire history <laughs> of the Catholic Church. And in that sense, it's and it's far more a story about personalities and politics. Oh, than, yeah. than, oh it's yeah. a fascinating story. Yeah, yeah. real soap opera. Yeah, I mean, there are no, there are no good guys in it. Uh, yeah. Everybody got stuff wrong, yeah. um, and the church at the time was a brute beast. Often, right. uh, people were being burned for heresy, but no scientist has ever been executed for their science by in the entire history of the Christian church. That, that's an interesting one. I mean, I'm sure there's a few other myths you explode in the course of this book as well, because, as I say, we do live in this era where there, there's this kind of narrative about science versus faith and so on. I mean, Tom, you, you've been trying to counter that narrative, you know, for as long as you've been working practically. Yeah. But, but what is it about, uh, the, I mean, in general, do you see what Dave sees in his classroom in the scientific ranks that generally there's this assumption that if you're a scientist you're not a god fearer um, mm. and and is that borne out with the academics you work with that that they're surprised that you have a faith well, I'm often asked this actually and I don't know whether you think it's good news or bad news but I would say not so much um, mm. people are always expecting me to say oh yeah I'm gonna get terrible trouble and yeah. the Royal Society I get terrible trouble in my physics department and actually to be honest I really don't mm. um, and it's not because I shut up and stuff my faith in people's faces all the time but I haven't been quiet about it exactly um, uh, you know maybe people think I'm, a bit, I'm not alone so mm. I can think of a good handful of um, of committed Christians in my physics department and um, and uh, it's uh, you know what the statistics show is that uh, is that by and large being a scientist or not being a scientist doesn't affect the likelihood you know for whatever reason of being equal that you're a believer or not. Um, so uh, actually, so I, I, mean, I wish I could tell you I'm going to persecute with inch of my life, but I'm actually not. Um, have to say, uh, w- however, we, people like universities, like, like all places. I mean, this this question does pack the crowds in. So if we, um, if you, if we did at uh, uh, Durham last term, we had um, a Durham uh, uh, Physics Society debate where um, one of my colleagues. Um, uh, who's uh, a quite an outspoken atheist. He was debating against me and the Bishop of Durham, in fact. We mm. actually got on to this. We thought it would be quite a small affair. We had to move the lecture theatre at the last minute because oh. 300 people came or something, mm. far more than we thought. Actually, we, I could have guessed. This, this question runs around. Runs. But actually, the, 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 um, I'm a bit ambivalent about this because people love fights. They mm. love... Mm. You know, the, the Romans, they love the Colosseum, <laughs> they love the gladiatorial fight. And that was a bit of a gladiatorial fight. But uh, what I'm trying to do, and what we were both trying to say in the book, and what I was trying to say in an earlier book called Faith and Wisdom in Science, was that actually we need to get beyond the fight mm. because actually time is short and we need to drop this silly combative view and actually realise not just historically in the past is it important for the church to support its science, which it which it has but it's going to be important in the future mm. and something that i say is look at every important so many of the important global questions we questions that we're facing now mm. climate change um energies things like fracking mm. um uh, human disease and development um uh, genetic engineering and all those things. these are re- uh, ge- genetic engineer crops these are really mm. important questions mm. they're science-based questions but the public debates about them political debates are characterized to be honest not by being very grown up but by this combative gladiatorial mm. you know th- making pre- uh, prejudged opinions and yeah. then and hurling anathemas at each other and one of the reasons for that is frankly because the church has turned its back on its responsibility and run away from this what i'm telling to saying to christians is that get behind stop seeing science as a threat seeing it at, see it as god's gift or a talent not to bury in the ground mm. t- to take a New Testament parable. I'm, I'm sure that for many of, of us in the past, the church has been the talent that the wicked servant buried in the ground because he was frightened of the master, mm. thinking it was not what he wanted him to, to, to use. Well, actually mm. it was. We need to get out there and be salt and light in the world. Mm. Um, 
Uh, we're running, I'm running a, a, a lovely project with uh, Michael David Wilkinson, who's principal of St. John's College, Durham. You may have uh, met him. And, and we're, we're trying to work with senior Christian leaders, bishops, if it comes to the Church of England, senior leaders in other churches, mm. and getting them into the lab, meeting scientists, yeah. getting yeah. to, to realise that science is a calling and that their churches can, can and, help And the church is a friend of science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. not this sort exactly. of idea. Well, one of the things exactly. that we would love is um, you typically have somewhere around about May, June in, in churches all over the country, um, you have the, the 17 or 18 year old who's been in the mm, church the whole mm. time, they're called up to the front, mm. they give a little bit of testimony and they're gonna go off to the mission field somewhere or they're gonna go and do a theology yeah. degree mm. and hands are laid on and they're prayed for yeah. and so on. Well, we, we would say um, it's as much right. a calling on someone's life to go and study biology or astrophysics um, as it is for them to go to the mission field and, and so let's on. pray for them. Let's pray for them. And, and, and so we get them up and, and we pray yeah. and that there'll be a yeah. blessing in that area. That yeah, and, and I, I think there the are probably more, you know, scientists in our congregations than we often think mm. there are, but mm. they sort of keep a low profile and don't talk about it because yeah. it's yeah, not considered true. as a spiritual kind of yeah. way of looking at the world yeah. or something. And uh, if you look at Solomon, um, he, he asks God for wisdom to rule the nations. And... It says in 1, in 1 Kings 4 that so God gave Solomon all this wisdom. He was wiser than this guy, wiser than this guy, wiser than this guy. And everybody came to listen to him. And if you look at what it is that he talks about, it says he talks about birds. He talks yeah. about plants. He yeah. talks. Yeah. So what's he doing? He's doing science, <laughs> mm, right? Mm. Well, what's he saying about plants? Mm. So <laughs> that, that thousands <laughs> of people would come and listen to him. Yeah, yeah. It must be new revelations <laughs> about nature. Right. Um, and so we see really early on. And yeah. Paul in Romans chapter one, um, what can be known about God yeah. is made clear in, yeah. in the nature around us. Yeah. And Paul's not writing in the context of a big atheism versus theism debate. He's writing in a theistic world. Yeah, yeah. And so actually his claim is even deeper. He's saying by looking at the world around us, you're not going to find out just whether there's a God or not. You're going to find out who mm. that God is, what they're like. Mm. You know, and, yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and that, that really is significant. That's an interesting claim. I mean, do you think the, the, the conversation is changing on this, Tom? Because, yeah. And I'll give you an example which you'll be very familiar with, which yeah. is your predecessor in your role at the Royal Society, Michael Rice. Yeah, he, yeah. He um, kind of found himself at the centre of a controversy, yeah. not of his own making, but as someone who I think is ordained himself, right. yes, um, his, his role at the time as, as uh, that you now hold, which is um, uh, part of the uh, education, yeah, education head, chairing yeah. that for mm. the Royal Society, was suddenly called out mm. on this by Richard Dawkins, who likened it to being something from a, a Monty Python sketch that you would have an ordained clergyman in charge of, um, you know, education from the Royal Society. Yeah. Now... Michael Rice and I interviewed him about this. Was incredibly gracious as he is yeah, about this whole episode. Absolutely um, gracious is the word. Yeah. But that kind of, and I don't know if you, that, maybe that wouldn't happen today. You know, it's not that long ago it happened. But yeah. but do you feel things are getting beyond that kind of? Kind of rather well, I'm still actually looking view. forward to when Richard Dawkins <laughs> calls it Monty Python-esque that a, an Anglican lay reader is now. Because they, they seem to have committed the yeah, same error twice. Yeah, no, that's true. So right. Jerry Coyne, his blog, did... did um, kind of the American after, version yeah, of, of Dawkins. Yeah. He kind of, yeah. Four <laughs> hours after publication of uh, Let There Be Science, Jerry blogged about, about the book. It was... Um, the, the, the worst person you can be, if, uh, according to Jerry Coyne, is an accommodationist, like mm. a swear word. So we're accommodationists, so we're saying that scientists go together, which they, do, which they always have to do. So, Jerry, <laughs> evidence. Uh, but um, he said, what the, am I allowed to swear on this program? Maybe someone else is well? I'm not sure. Anyway, I'll, it's what the beep, 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 he wrote, um, is, uh, is a Christian doing um, as the uh, Royal Society Education Chair. So I had great fun writing at enormous length exactly what we are doing right. to help science teachers to bolster kids with great science education to broaden you know I, I answered his question precisely right. did he get back to you yeah he said well, okay fair enough well, thank you I'm good it's good you're doing all this stuff but as long as faith doesn't enter it and this religion enters into it well yeah. you know okay Jerry <laughs> but but yeah I think things are I think things are ch are changing um, that wasn't the Royal Society's greatest moment it was all a horrendous misunderstanding actually mm. um, what um uh, what Michael was trying to do is to uh, is to say that it, that schools are a good place to handle um, 
the creationist arguments, some of these, these, these anti-scientific arguments mm. that kids are getting perhaps in some churches or mm. some, some places, and, to, uh, and give them a space to work them through. He wasn't suggesting that it was, this happened in science lessons. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, and it's true. I think that schools are, are, are not a place you should shut down the questions that, that, that kids have, but you should open them up and discuss them. Um, and I think those are very important places because there are, there are certainly... Th- statements that, the, that church, some churches have made mm. uh, which are not biblical mm. and and of huge destruction to the gospel and this insistence on um, six-day creationism is one of those it's one of those it's doing huge amounts of, of, mm. of, of, of damage to people to the church and to science so um, I haven't got time to discuss that at great great length now, but good for good for Mike for bringing that mm. up. But I do think there's there's a, there's a, a, a change now, and there's a project called Scientists in Congregations. But you use the word. There's a project that yeah. that we're involved in funding. Um, messy Church has got involved. There are all sorts of things. I was involved in three churches in East Leeds: a Baptist, a Methodist, Anglican church. Just decided to launch a science festival because why not yeah. for their for their <laughs> local community? Norwich Cathedral is going to have next year. You heard it. First, here um, on Premier Christian Radio, Dippy the Dinosaur <laughs> is going to spend six weeks down the nave wow. of Norwich Cathedral. All the surfaces are going to happen around it. Um, so <laughs> it's, the dinosaur's going on a national tour, and in, in the east of England, it's going to land in Norwich, Norwich Cathedral, and they're going to build all sorts of science yeah. events around that. And, and the whole thing for you, and, and I guess the, the, the message from this book is, is that Christians, the church, faith have nothing to fear from science. On, the contrary, on the contrary, they have worked together in, in harmony for so long and, and, uh, and we, we shouldn't buy into this narrative that they somehow have been or are in conflict today. No, um, it, it, it's fascinating stuff. Really, do you want to say thank you for creating a, a hugely helpful resource, I think. One that I think probably is going to be helpful for um, students as well, Dave. I think this is the kind of book that hopefully someone who's maybe at that A-level <clears throat> stage and wanting to start to look into these kinds of issues could pick up and use. Yeah, I think it, it is mm. aimed at someone who hasn't got any specialist advanced knowledge in either science or in Christianity. Mm. One, one of the most encouraging things to have happened for me is um, that there have been a couple of uh, ladies who I would say are over the age of 65 right. who've bought it and read it. And um, one of them has now covered their wall in their office with printouts from Wikipedia of <laughs> the planets and the periodic table and so on. And they said, you know, science is something that's passed me by completely my whole life. Right. Um, but I've read this book and I thought, hey, there's this whole world that I don't know about. And this person is a Christian. <laughs> right. And I think that we're seeing this happen. People shut mm. away from science mm. Because it's presented as he said, and suddenly they think, "Oh, this is amazing!" Yeah, um, yeah. And, a, and another lady who said, "You know, I have tried to understand mm. scientific the scientific understanding of the universe, and never got anywhere, but I read this book, and all of a sudden, wow. it fits into place." Great, yeah. great praise. We're, we're out of time, I'm afraid, but it's been so much fun talking to you both. Uh, Tom McLeish and David Hutchings have been my guests on The Profile today here on Premier Christian Radio. If you want to listen back to the show, uh, do go to the website premierchristianradio.com slash the profile or find it as a podcast on iTunes and other podcast providers. And uh, don't forget to get hold of the book as well, Let There Be Science, published by Lion. And, uh, and indeed, uh, you can find more interviews, of course, with people from all walks of faith and life in the magazine, Premier Christianity magazine, bringing you today's show, uh, premierchristianity.com for more info. For the moment, um, time's beaten us, but David and Tom, it's been such a pleasure and all the very best. And I hope this book reaches many people and continues the conversation. They're very kind. Thank, Thank you very much. We yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you, Justin. You've been listening to The Profile with me, Justin Briley. Coming up next, Dave Rose is here with Premier Playback.